our beginning point this evening, our sermon passage is Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, which I'm sure most of you know by heart. But why don't we begin reading in verse 25, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 25. Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Please be seated. Almighty and merciful Father, we thank you that as we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and only by his righteousness that you come down to us. And you don't come down to us as you did to the people at Babylon to judge them, but you come down, O oh Father, to bless us. And we need it. Lord, sustain us. As we look to your word tonight and to the, to the men whom you've ordained uh, in times and past to, um, to write a word that would be used for the preservation of truth. Lord, we ask that you bless us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Reverend and very dear brother, God only knows what unspeakable sorrow of heart I have felt on your account since I left England last. Whether it be my infirmity or not, I frankly confess that Jonah could not go with more reluctance against Nineveh than I now take pen in hand to write against you. Was nature to speak, I had rather die than do it. And yet if I am faithful to God and to my own and other souls, I must not stand neutral any longer. I am very apprehensive that our common adversaries will rejoice to see us differing among ourselves. But what can I say? The children of God are in danger of falling into error. Nay, numbers have been misled whom God has been pleased to work upon by my ministry, and a great number are still calling aloud upon me to show also my opinion. I must then show that I know no man after the flesh, and that I have no respect to persons, any further than is consistent with my duty to my Lord and Master Jesus Christ. This letter, no doubt, will lose me many friends, and for this cause, perhaps God has laid this difficult task upon me, even to see whether I am willing to forsake all for him or not. From such considerations as these, I think it my duty to bear an humble testimony and earnestly to plead for the truths which I am convinced are clearly revealed in the word of God. In the defense whereof, I must use great plainness of speech and treat my dearest friends upon earth with the greatest simplicity faithfulness, and freedom, leaving the consequences of all to God. This is the opening of a letter written on December 24th from George Whitfield to John Wesley. You see, George Whitfield was a, a disciple of John Wesley. He had been um, tutored by his, his great uh, mentor, was a protege to him, 
And yet the two men had a great falling out, and especially this falling out came to a head when John Wesley published a sermon titled Free Grace, arguing for universal redemption. And it was at that moment that George Whitfield said, no, sir, you have gone too far. And this is error, and I have to address it. And so as we think about this, I thought that would be an appropriate starting point for us tonight as we think about how this laid so heavily upon George Whitfield's heart. Not only to, he's not only um, addressing an error that, that some pastor somewhere that he's never even had lunch with has written, but he's, he's having to, to, to rebuke publicly his own mentor. And as he said, to leave the consequences to God. Tonight we're talking about how you and I should handle the doctrine of predestination and election with others. And I think that the Westminster Confession of Faith gives us wonderful, wonderful counsel as we think this through. I'll just read to you the eighth paragraph of chapter three of the confession. It says, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. There was a concern by these godly men, that if this doctrine was not handled properly, that perhaps it would cause undue offense uh, to some. But that we should all think about how and why we teach this doctrine to others. What are you trying to achieve in teaching it? As they were revising the 39 articles of the Church of England, they were, I think, picking up on the 17th paragraph of those 39 articles. It says this, As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and, as, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith and eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. So, for curious and carnal persons lacking the Spirit of Christ to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living. No perilous, no less perilous than desperation. The concern of, the, of our Anglican brothers was to say, if you teach this to the, in the wrong context, in, 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 instead of driving them to, to a holiness of life, it's going to drive them to the opposite. Well, I'm not chosen, therefore I will just give myself to my carnality. Well, as we handle the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're going to do it in, in three points, beginning with how you should handle 
the doctrine of predestination, how you should handle the doctrine of predestination. And you ought to handle it as a high mystery. That's an interesting phrase. Um, It's a high mystery. What does that mean? Well, when it comes to God's sovereign redemption, we come upon a doctrine about which we have many questions, don't we? I mean, if we're honest, we have a lot of questions about this great doctrine. And think about the dialogue that Paul anticipates in Romans chapter 9. Turn over there with me to Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 9, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And Paul, in writing those words, immediately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that there would be questions about that. And he records it in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If it's God and he's determining to have mercy on this one and to withhold mercy from this other one, how does he find fault with anyone? Who can resist his will? Or if we go back up to verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, Paul, as he's talking about the doctrine of election and predestination, he's anticipating that even in the Roman church, there will be men who say, how does this work exactly? How do we not ascribe to God injustice that he would love Esau or or hate Esau and love Jacob before they had uh, done anything good or bad? So we go to verse 20. Paul answers, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Rather than venture to explain a a secret aspect of God's will, he doesn't go into any detail as to why he chose Jacob over Esau. All we're given is the fact that he did. Paul simply responds, God can do what he wants with his creation and isn't accountable to fallen men. So the Bible doesn't reveal why he chose certain men and passed over others. We aren't privy to that information. God doesn't give us a spreadsheet and tell us why these men are in this column and why these other men are in this column. Nor does it reveal specifically how to reconcile God's absolute sovereignty with the fact that you and I, on a daily basis, make free decisions. It doesn't teach us why he permits certain evil acts. And so it is here that, like Job, we wisely put our hands over our mouths. Think about, we just read Moses' instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and and you can imagine Moses there uh, preaching to the gathered congregation of Israel. And he says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so at the very least, this verse teaches us that there are secret things 
That in, even though God has revealed Himself in His Word and it is perfect, it is not comprehensive. It doesn't teach us all that there is to know about God Himself or the universe. It reveals what we need to know in order to be saved and to live before Him in a way that honors Him. We cling to and carefully study what, we, what He has revealed but we also discipline ourselves to stop where Scripture stops. So we handle this doctrine with special prudence and care. Um, as the Lord sanctifies you, as you study His Word, you, you encounter these, this doctrine of election and predestination. And, and maybe if you are like me, you wrestle with it for a little bit and you study and you read and then finally you, you resolve and you say, well, this, there's no way around it. God teaches us that He is sovereign. It's, it's a biblical necessity. It's a logical necessity. God is the only free being. He is the only being in all the universe who is totally free in all that He does. I have a creaturely freedom. And so you come to understand the doctrines of grace. And you say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a Calvinist now. And you wear a t-shirt that says Calvinist on it. And some enter what we call the cage stage. Maybe you've heard this before. This is the stage upon which you've understood the doctrines of election and you've decided that every man needs to understand it too. And if you don't understand it and heartily agree, you are going to hell. Probably tomorrow. They believe they must convince everyone of the five points of Calvinism. No matter what, let's fight about it. Well, the Westminster divines come to us and they say, the doctrine must be handled with special prudence and care. Zeal without wisdom it's foolishness. And I, I think of it this way. So the confession does not advise you to keep quiet about it. It doesn't say never talk to your neighbors about sovereignty. We recognize that God's sovereignty is essential, don't we? It's not essential just so that you can glorify God fully, though it is. But it's also essential so that you live under affliction with comfort. It is essential to Christian faithfulness. And so it ought to be studied and taught clearly. Yet we must teach it in a way that exalts Christ and encourages the believer. Understanding that men will naturally resist the doctrine because they are naturally self-serving, not God-honoring. Um, two years ago, two summers ago, I had to go and pick Emma up from camp a week early because she was sick and just the week before my dad had died and I didn't tell her I was waiting to go pick her up before I told her and she gets in the car and we're driving along back from Florence Mississippi and it took me 10 minutes you know just to open my mouth and say the words to her and I think, I, I offer you that illustration because I think that, that gives us an idea of the wisdom of, of how we talk about sovereignty with others. Don't remain silent, but take, use prudence. Look for the right opportunities. Take care. Now understand if a person is, is ready to begin talking about God as a sovereign God. 
This is the advice of our Westminster divines. If you understand and are assured of God's sovereignty, if He's given you an assurance of your own election, give thanks. And use the doctrine to help others find comfort and pray. I think pray that the Lord would help you use wisdom in discussing the doctrines of grace with others. Two, how to help others gain assurance. How to help others gain assurance. That's what the middle part of the confession is all about here. What, what, why are we given the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty? Well, because it's true. It exalts Christ. It exalts God. It reminds man that, that you and I are dust on the scales of God's balance. But it's also given to us so that we'll be assured of our salvation, you understand. Because God's electing purpose, it is the foundation of grace. It is the very foundation of grace. So that if you eliminate God's sovereignty, what are you eliminating? Well, you're eliminating the foundation of God's grace. What does the confession advise us to do? Well, you direct men to study the Word. Give yourself to the Word. Study the Word and obey the Word. Reflect on your effectual calling. Effectual calling as we're soon going to study, is the, is, is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to give you a new heart, enabling you to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what the confession is saying here, as you direct men to the Word, study the Word, obey the Word, and find assurance in your effectual, and the confession uses the term vocation, find your assurance in your effectual calling, it's telling you that the doctrine of election itself isn't the source of assurance. It's effectual calling. What, what does that mean? What do the, what do the writers of the confession mean? Well, read, turn over to Second Peter with me. Chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I don't know if you have watched the movie The Santa Claus. Um, The first one, Tim Allen, he puts the Santa suit on and he suddenly becomes Santa Claus. There's a moment in the movie where these FedEx trucks show up to his house and they begin bringing all these cases in and he opens the door and there are thousands of cases that FedEx has delivered to his home. And he opens up the cases and inside is a list and it, it's the naughty and nice list. I don't know why we put naughty first. I know what the pessimistic expectation that is. But they tell him who deserves presents and, and who deserves coal? So if you and I, if we were really sneaky, we might be able to go and look on Santa's list and find out ahead of time which one we're on. God also has a book with names written on it. But He hasn't provided that list to you and me. 
It's not written in the stars. There's not a second Revelations that has God's book of life in it. We, so we, we cannot obtain assurance, do you see? An assurance of our personal election by traveling to Jerusalem and peering at the book of life. So how do I gain assurance of my election? How do I know if God has chosen me? Well, what does Peter say? Make your calling sure. What does Peter mean by that? What he means is that we gain assurance of election by looking for the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is why we direct men to the Word. Well, I'm starting to understand this doctrine of election, but now I'm starting to wonder, how do I know if I'm elect? This is a divine mystery. You yourself, Mr. Presbyterian, tell me that it's a high mystery. How do I know if He's chosen me? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Peter tells you, here's how you know. Obey Jesus. Look for the work of the Spirit in your life. I evaluate my own love for Christ and His Word. If we skip back a little bit, go back with me to 2 Peter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You see, what Peter is saying is, how how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if there's an inheritance preserved for me in heaven? Well, are you steadfast in in the faith? Do Do you see brotherly love? Do you see love in your life? Are you growing in knowledge? Self-control? Are you godly? You see, all of these qualities are given to you by the Spirit to assure you that He's there. So we direct men not to ponder the doctrine of election for personal assurance as much as we direct them to looking at the quality of their own lives. Thirdly, how elections should affect you and others. I think if we talked about this, you would come up with a whole host of ways that understanding the doctrine of election has affected your life. Principally, the confession reminds us that it heightens our worship of God. What does it mean to you when you come into this room to worship with the gathered saints and you remember that if I'm honest with myself, when I pray to Jesus, if He ignored me like He did that woman this morning, He would be perfectly right to do that. We can see it in the psalmist when he says, what is man that you're mindful of Him? 
This is, this is the high mystery to me, that He would listen to my prayer at all or assure me in the Psalms of His love or condescend to Abraham when he's out in the desert worshiping moon gods. That's a mystery to me. That He would love Jacob. That's a mystery to me. This doctrine heightens your worship of God with praise, reverence, and admiration. You live with obvious thanks to God in all situations. This is what sovereignty does. Because you know that when that person cuts you off in traffic, or you don't get the promotion that you've been praying for, this is an act of God's sovereignty. I was just talking with a friend of mine um, recently who was let go from his job. And I reminded him that perhaps the Lord was preserving him from some difficult situation that he didn't need to be a part of. We never know when God is protecting us. But we know that he's working out his good purposes at all times. It results not only in praise, but in reverence. Think of this. Sovereignty curtails complaining about life's circumstances. Sovereignty curtails complaining. How does it do that? I stop complaining about what I'm going through because I know that God has ordered whatever my circumstance is for my good. When we complain, when we worry, we pretend that God doesn't know what He's doing or that He's powerless to help us. It results in admiration. You deeply appreciate God's infinite wisdom. According to Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, God chose us in Christ specifically to the praise of His glorious grace. If understanding the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election does not result in my greater praise of His glorious grace, I don't understand it. Not only does it heighten your worship of God, it deepens your Christian character. There's nothing like absorbing this doctrine to create a humble spirit in a man. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. This is Paul's counsel as we think about God's judgment against Israel. You think you are of God's elect. Show it by your humility. It results in diligence. Those who belong to Christ show it by their careful obedience to His holy law. As Peter said, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And then, of course, abundant consolation. And this is why. These are the reasons we we teach the doctrine. 
It's not from a position of arrogance. It's from a position of care, of love, that men assent to all of the truth and that they find in it abundant consolation. Think of what Paul says in Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If you belong to Him, no one can bring a charge against you. The devil and all of his arguments cannot sway him because Paul says it is God who justifies. Speaking to the 72 that he sent out, Jesus in Luke 10, 19 said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then in verse 20, you remember what he said? Don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we handle the high mystery of God's sovereignty with prudence and care. But do handle it. Don't avoid it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be concerned about talking with it, about it with your friends. God's given it to us. He's revealed this part. This is not a secret part that He elects, He chooses, whom He will save, whom He will show mercy to. And He's given it to us for our peace and comfort. It isn't such a high mystery that we can know nothing about it. If you want to help others find comfort in their afflictions, chase worry away, rise above doubt and despair, gain an assurance of salvation, carefully and prudently point them to the sovereignty of God and salvation. George Whitfield concluded his letter to Wesley this way. God knows my heart. As I told you before, so I declare again, nothing but a single regard to the honor of Christ has forced this letter from me. I love and honor you for His sake. And when I come to judgment, will thank you before men and angels for what you have under God done for my soul. There I am persuaded. I shall see dear Mr. Wesley convinced of election and everlasting love. And it often fills me with pleasure to think how I shall behold you casting your crown down at the feet of the Lamb and as it were, filled with a holy blushing for opposing the divine sovereignty in the manner you have done. But I hope the Lord will show you this before you go hence. Oh, how I do long for that day. If the Lord should be pleased to make use of this letter for that purpose, it would abundantly rejoice the heart of dear and honored sir, your affectionate though unworthy brother and servant in Christ, George Whitfield. I share that with you just to show that these things can be shown in love and care and reverence for others, concern for them, and that by helping others to grasp this doctrine, you're not showing hatred for their souls or being arrogant, even though you will be charged, but you are seeking their peace and their comfort and their consolation in Christ and the blessed grace of His gospel. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, we sing the hymn often and we reflect on 
the great dinner party that you throw, and we don't understand why we were made guests. This is part of the high mystery. Not a single person in this room says, you know what, I, I understand why I was chosen. We contribute nothing. We take more than we give. You died for us when we were yet sinners. We have no righteousness that belongs to us as such, apart from you. And yet you give us all things. We ask that you would help us to be faithful stewards of this high mystery, Lord. That we wouldn't shy away from it. That we would carefully, patiently, prudently, and carefully assert it to others. Not so that they will simply understand the doctrine of election and be joined to the crowd of Calvinists. But so that they might worship you rightly and give all honor to Christ as he deserves and find comfort and assurance in the true doctrine of grace freely given. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.